Okay, today is not April 20th, 2017. However, this is episode 40, that's right folks, 40 of Oscar Mike Radio. And I'm pleased, it's a different kind of show, you can hear some noise in the background, that's because we are still in the city of champions, that's Brockton, Massachusetts, but we are at JJ's Cafe, and I am joined by my very good friend, mentor, and, and muse, Kip Clark from the podcast Stride and Saunter, and Kip has 140 plus episodes, I'm on episode 40, so a lot of times I will bug him for tips and tricks and how to do things, and I'm pleased to have you here, we're going to enjoy some food, we're going to have some good conversation, good morning Kip, thanks for coming. Hey Travis, thank you for having me, I will do my best to speak up so everyone can hear me, and it's a pleasure to be here. I always appreciate the authenticity you bring, the knowledge you bring, and I'm really excited to talk to you today. Absolutely, absolutely, likewise. So, you know, we talked before, and, and you asked me questions about my military experience, but one of the things that I got out of that, thinking of our last podcast on Stride and Sonner, was what got you interested into talking about military matters with me or anybody else? Sure. Well, frankly, I think it's a myriad of things, and I'll do my best to cover all of them, but my apologies if I forget. The first thing that came to mind when you posed that question to me as we were preparing is that I've always loved history. And so there were history teachers I had in middle school and high school that were phenomenal and taught me a great deal about how militaries around the world have shaped the world we live in today and shaped our cultures, shaped different senses of patriotism around the world, but fundamentally I've been so intrigued to see how militaries around the world have shaped borders and defined heroes and villains in many ways, and so while history is the story of humanity in a broad sense, I think military is a key player there. Life is a stage, as Shakespeare said. I think the military plays a key role as one of the main characters, so to speak. And that's a big part of my interest in the military because there's a great deal I don't know and would like to learn. And I've always found stories of large battles and famous war figures to be fascinating because wartime or any situations connected to or related to combat always bring out very interesting thought patterns to people and the creativity that is required to defend one's home or to outmaneuver an enemy to me is always very fascinating. And I think you said it right, you know, military history has been so embedded with the world history, many things, good or bad would not have happened without a military to, to make them happen. Uh, you can go back to Genghis Khan and his, you know, way he changed the world through his military prowess, the Roman Empire, um, the British Empire, I mean, the, the French when they expanded out into different areas, and the Spanish Empire, I could go on and on and on, but there's certainly a segment of history there. But, you know, I, again, I was interested in your perspective because a lot of you know, millennials, you are in a good way much younger than me, but in a, in, 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 a, in a way, there are so many times where a lot of millennials I meet, younger people, are more worried about their social media feeds and the bigger world around them. But as I've gotten into podcasting, I've found that there are a lot of 
of people like you who want to explore the greater world around them. And, and what's your process to do that? Sure. Well, I'm glad that you bring up social media because I think it functions in a lot of different ways for a lot of different people. And I'm not trying to offer a blanket statement about how social media functions. But in my observation, and I'd hope for a lot of people that I know and love, social media functions as a means of stimulating curiosity. And so it's not necessarily always about me, what I'm doing, and my activities that I want comments and attention for, but rather that it allows me a window into the lives of people around me. And if you extend that, it allows me a certain window into the world around me. And I think in many ways, social media for me has functioned as a secondary or tertiary form of education because I'm seeing a lot of really honest posts from some people I haven't spoken to in a while and people who have pursued different paths. And it's been really fascinating to see what people have to say. And frankly, I'm not connected with many people on social media who talk about or share their opinions or information on the military. But I do think there are a lot of conversations happening in the social media of my generation that revolve around military issues. And so I've been exposed to a lot of very strong criticism of military action in the contemporary sense. And it's something, frankly, that I need to read up on because I don't know that I have a clear sense of how I feel. I tend to be hyper-averse to violence in a lot of ways, but I also recognize that if an aggressor exists, pacifism may not be a logical or a straightforward solution to respond to that aggression, to respond to an atrocity, perhaps a genocide. And so I do think military issues are often more gray, more complicated than a lot of members of my generation post on social media would make it out to see. And they post very black and white statements about why something is uniformly wrong. And rarely do I see commendation or accolades given to members of the military for what I see as bravery, dedication, and loyalty to commanding officers, to commands and orders, whether or not personnel on the ground level agree with the orders they've been given. And to clarify, when I say ground level, I mean the lowest levels of military, not necessarily troops on the ground. One of the things that I see with social media now versus when I served is the average person, civilian, whoever they are, whether it's a mom, you know, family member, dad, is you can get a better idea of what life is like than when I serve. However, you, you are right by saying that you don't really know what it's really like, and there's this, there is this perception that it's very black and white and people don't understand that which is why I'm very pleased to talk to you and try to explain that yes from the top level it looks like that's a very wrong thing to do uh, we'll go back to last week where the mother of all bombs was dropped on ISIS that was considered by some people a very bad thing to do I look at it as, well, we can sit there and send more troops to get killed, maimed, injured to try to take these people out who are trying to harm us. 
or we can actually, you know, drop something like this to end this quicker. We've been in Afghanistan for almost 15 years. It's I think there's an appetite for Americans to end this in some kind of closure. So on the, on the good side, you can use social media to connect with these younger people to try to explain that. And, and it's all about the message. So you're seeing these things on social media and you're seeing these opinions espoused. You mentioned something about you know people being very critical of anything you might say. Do you think that comes from just a lack of, of knowledge or just a willful, not willful, but a preconceived notion that's been not drilled in your head? You, you have this idea of how things should be, you're not going to deviate it from. So let me rephrase that. Do you think that idea comes from you know, ideology or from kind of like, you know, following the herd? I'm glad you asked. I think it's in large part a following the herd mentality. And actually very quickly I'd like to touch on the mother of all bombs because I think there's gray area there lost on a lot of people being hypercritical of the decision. And on my social media feeds, whether that's Twitter and Facebook, I've seen people pointing out that, at least according to their information, that bomb cost $300 million plus dollars and that money could have been spent to help the individuals and citizens in Flint, Michigan, and in general that they felt that money could have been spent elsewhere. And I personally don't know the cost of the bomb, but one thought that occurred to me after learning a little bit more about how it detonates and how it functions, first of all, the statement that it is the largest non-nuclear bomb, I think, misleads a lot of people into thinking that it's essentially the next most destructive thing when, in my understanding, a nuclear bomb is in a category all its own as far as destructive capacity, and so the next most destructive non-nuclear bomb may not really compare in a lot of senses, and I think that headline, that phrasing, misleads a lot of people. And the bomb's detonation intrigues me because, in my understanding, it was used because its blast radius and the shock waves, essentially, that it creates can be used to essentially collapse tunnels. And so it was used against ISIS military members or individuals because their tunnels are commonly used underground to transport their troops, for lack of a better noun. And in my mind, ground combat might produce casualties on both sides. But if hypothetically no ISIS personnel are in those tunnels when they are destroyed, no one is killed, but the enemy does suffer a setback as a result. And I suspect there were individuals in those tunnels, but they represent tactical targets in the same way that bridges or railroads might be targeted in other military situations. So I don't think that gray narrative is being discussed in a lot of the media. But to get back to your question about following the herd, I do think in many ways social media brings out the negatives in human nature that I personally feel we are naturally negatively inclined creatures because survival requires that we look at problems, that we look at obstacles, and enjoy certain luxuries, but not focus on them, because they aren't problems that we need to solve. And so on social media, you see congratulations, you see celebrations, but more often than not, in my feeds at least, 
you see a lot of criticism. I think part of that is that criticism can be perpetual. You can always find something to tear apart, to point fault in. And so I think that's why the conversation persists on social media regarding the military as negative, more often than not. And to me, what's interesting is that individuals post this on social media. I don't see companies or larger groups posting negative commentary. And yet individuals are not posting about individuals in the military. And for me, that distinction is essential because you may disagree with the overall tactics or strategies employed by any branch of the military. But on a ground level, again, to come back to that term, I have the utmost respect for the training that servicemen and women go through, for the circumstances of combat that I believe require bravery I can't even begin to fathom, having never been in a life or death situation. And as we discussed in our episode, the sense of camaraderie and brotherhood and the bond that is formed to me is a powerful human experience that I think is too rare in our world and more people deserve to experience a connection like that. And I don't see any of those discussions happening on social media and I think part of it is that there is a sense that we are disconnected as civilians from military issues. So we can respond to the generals, the politicians, because we're familiar with them to an extent as talking heads, but it's rare and perhaps in an unspoken way acknowledge this disrespectful to comment on individuals in the military because we don't know their stories. And certainly there are individuals who I think disrespect and dishonor their military service by abusing the power or the circumstances they've been given but I don't believe that's the majority. And I do wish more positive stories about courageous service and dedication in the military were shared, frankly, and I don't see a lot of them. But here's my next question to you. Because I've noticed with the younger generation, like all, all, all people ask, why do I have to do this? But it seems like this generation, your generation, really wants to not just ask why, they demand they expect you to be able to dig down and tell them, you know, okay, we're going to do this. Why are we doing this? Well, because they're bad. That's no longer good enough. Your generation expects to tell the, the person to tell them why are they bad. What 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 was done to get at this decision to go in and attack this country or this people or this action? Was that person's death? warranted or could give them this a different way and that's where I feel going back to your your comments about the um, Moab uh, bomb maybe that was missed maybe the military maybe the people doing this could have said why or explained the why better instead of the how okay we dropped this big huge bomb this is how we did it but I really feel that from what you just told me the why wasn't really articulated that well. Am I, am, I, am I understanding that correctly? I think you are, and I do agree that my generation demands why in a very consistent, and I'm sure to the recipients of that question, a very annoying way at times, because we are so curious, for lack of a better word, to the point that I think we alienate a lot of people that we are interested to learn from or that we are speaking to 
because all of us, talking about every human in the world, I think, do not always know our motivation, our subconscious drives, and if we find someone attractive, or if we choose a certain school, or a certain form of entertainment, I don't think that's always a conscious decision. I think there are things that drive our personalities that we aren't always in control of. And to bring it to questions of the military, if you ask someone whether they are infantry, in the Air Force, Marine, whether they are a general, a commander, a platoon leader, why they did something, I think there may be a few bullet points there, which most people could give, but if you keep asking why in the same way that a persistent child might ask of their parents, eventually you run up against a point where you don't know how to answer, and the response to that 15th or 16th why is simply because I wanted to, or because I thought it was the right thing to do. And at that point, you reach a level of subjectivity that is hard to get past. And I think my generation thinks a lot about oppression. And it's a narrative that is present in how we talk about race and how we talk about gender. And I think that has been applied to a lot of military issues, especially in the past, if we look at America, there were a lot of very troubling ways in which I feel the military was used against Native Americans, for example. And I think for a lot of people in my generation, we see the military as maintaining a certain stranglehold and being more or less an oppressive force because there isn't, at least as we perceive it, as much dialogue going on with relations to the military as we would like. And I say as we perceive it because I suspect, or at least I hope, that military leaders have a handful of conversations before deciding to do things like dropping the Moab and moving troops into certain areas. And I'm hopeful that leaders who make those decisions are not only well-informed, but are conscientious. I don't really believe that everyone in the military is bloodthirsty, is out for profit, and is only looking out for themselves. I do believe patriotism guides a great deal of military service. And I think one reason members of my generation, and at times myself, are critical of that, at least as I perceive it, is that patriotism seems at times to prize one country or their resources, their narrative, their actions, and their people over another country. And I think members in my generation are very sensitive to the idea that people around the world deserve just as much a chance at life, success, happiness as anyone else. And I don't think the military is against that, but I think there is the perception that our military serves our country rather than global safety and security. And I mention that because I do think that's what the military is trying to pursue, is security for everyone in the world. You're not the first person to sit there and say, wait a minute, if, if there wasn't oil in the Middle East, would we be over in the Middle East as much as we are? And that's a question that we asked several times when I was serving back in 1995-96. You know, if, if that desert patch of earth didn't have any resources, would we, we be interested in going over there and, you know, protecting the Kuwaitis? We can, we can juggle that question forever because on the flip side, there's really, except for, well, opium, you 
can't really find anything in Afghanistan that's really monetarily valuable. Um, my buddies who serve over there will tell you that Afghanistan is one of the most ruggedly beautiful places in the earth. It's very harsh, very unforgiving, but it's there's a raw beauty there. So they feel that by their service allows the Afghani people to live with freedom from under the yoke of the Taliban. But it goes back to, uh, I want to go back to your thing where you, you talk about the why uh, the military operates or, or has been operating under this whole loose lips and ships kind of methodology. However, you know, they'll they'll drop this bomb, they'll show you it going out of the uh, back of the plane, so on and so forth. But it seems like, again, that they, they don't take the time to really account for the fact that the demographic has changed. It, it's not just good enough to wave the flag in certain parts of the country and say, we just you know, drop the bomb on those guys. There is a real desire by someone like yourself to sit there and say, well, just, just how much did that bomb cost? And we have crumbling bridges, bad roads, we have poor schools, we have our own veterans that served in the past who can't get the care they need. Why are we expending these money? I mean, I had someone ask me, Kip, you know, that, that new F-35, for example, to change gears a little bit, cost $140 million for one of them. $140 million, but there are, there are veterans who cannot get health care they need or mental care they need for their PTSD. And I, I got called the carpet and said, you know, wait a minute, why are you advocating for that expenditure but not advocating for the other? I said, well, well first of all, I, I, did a, I did a podcast on this. And I talked about that very thing. I don't disagree with you, but I said, you have to understand that you can make a, a, a change here. And the person's like, really? I said, yes, you have the power to write your senator, write your representatives, and get people to say, wait a minute, you know, we're not going to spend any more money on this system until these guys are done. And if enough people do that, these politicians will listen. This happened before. So... I can sense the angst from certain segments of the millennial population. Do you think that they would take the next step and actually take action? Or do they not know how or do they not care? That's the, that's the real crux of why I want to talk to you because they're motivated, they're passionate about what they believe in, they can communicate and articulate how they feel. But from my point of view, I don't see a lot of action sometimes. So. Do you think it's one of those three things? They just don't know how, they just don't care, or there's nothing in it for them? Well, I'm glad you asked. And I'm also very grateful that you bring up veterans who need care, because to me, the military and veterans are not separate, but they often feel separate in the larger conversation, in my opinion. We talk about how the military is currently behaving or how it has behaved in the past, but I rarely, except for your show and a few other sources, see any reference to what veterans are going through. Veterans in mind, veterans to my knowledge, experience severe post-traumatic stress disorder, those who have lost limbs, who have been maimed, 
and who have also witnessed tragedy and hardship and loss during their military service seem almost ignored by our society. And I've walked past plenty of people in cities like Boston who have cardboard signs saying, I'm a veteran, I've lost X, Y, and Z, and I could use help, and I don't see a lot of help for them. And I also wonder if they are in fact veterans, they can prove that, and where's their support? Where is their help from a government that decades ago or years ago requested that they serve and risk almost everything? To me, that seems like the worst slap in the face, because whether or not you agree with military action, a person was willing to give up their time and their safety and their home to travel far away to protect a country, to protect ideals, to protect citizens who may not have even been born yet. And we don't treat veterans with great respect. But your question focused on millennials and whether they don't know how to take action, they don't care. My perception is that millennials are very passionate, but if I'm an indication and friends around me are any anecdotal evidence, we operate on an axis of convenience more often than not. And so we may be very passionate about a cause, but if a rally for something or another cause where we could lend a hand is a 15 minute drive away or an hour and a half, we might be less likely to make that journey or if any number of steps is required, I think you see a drop-off in participation from millennials. And I do think that the passion is still there, but I don't think we always know how to organize, how to show support, how to defend our ideals and start those conversations. And admittedly, I have not been great at that despite principles that I feel very passionate about. And I think older generations could teach us a great deal about mobilizing because at least in American history there are great examples of rallies marches and protests that drew tremendous crowds and in my understanding of history in America enacted elicited great change in our country and and so at the risk of repeating myself I don't think it's a lack of interest or passion or concern but a lack of know-how Fair enough, and that, that, that really was a very open and, and candid answer to my question, which I'm going to ask a couple more questions before we close and get to the real business of while we're here, which is enjoying some great food. But if I understand you correctly, the old way to get a politician's attention and effect change was structured letter writing campaigns and showing up at their offices with a box full of letters and upset people who had written them. Are you suggesting that the, the drive is there, the passion is there, and the desire to change is there, but maybe if the, the means, the vehicle to to raise awareness to the politician or government entity was easier to do and more convenient and maybe aligned with a tweet, uh, Instagram post, or you as a millennial got 100,000 likes on a Facebook page and can show that you're going to vote a certain way if that politician does not you know, do what you think is important. Do you think if those things were streamlined for a younger generation, we would see more participation? 
in the uh, civic conversation? I think that's an excellent question to ask. And and I would argue that if the avenues were more clearly aligned between decision makers and those in power and members of my generation, as you pointed out, tweets or Instagram posts or Facebook pages, I do think we might feel more empowered as a generation. And the following may not apply to everyone, but I've noticed in myself degrees of cynicism where I want change to happen and I feel that it should, but I don't always believe deep down that change is possible in the short term and that it may take far longer than I have the patience or perhaps the attention span for, which I also think is an Achilles heel of my generation, that our attention is pulled in so many different directions by so many different sources of entertainment and information and social or professional opportunities that the time it would take to dedicate to a cause often seems like a high barrier for entry for many of us with rather limited free time. So before I close, I think the last question that I'm going to pose to you is this, or idea, if you will. What if the real way to affect change, and we can take this military change we're talking about and extrapolate it to anything that we want to change. We have a, a pool of people who are young, driven, have time, spend money, are you know, inquisitive and exploring you know the world around them and trying to make sense of it and we have another generation that you know has some miles on them maybe doesn't have all the the passion because of, of life happens they certainly have the ability to guide a conversation to you know maybe stay the course a little while longer and engage with that that younger population it almost seems like both groups could take the best of what we have to offer each other and make something work long term. I really believe what I'm hearing here is there is appetite for engagement on both sides. It's just coming together instead of letting our age and political differences and our work habits separate us from actually collaborating on something. Regardless of what it is, it could be potholes in the street. It could be, hey, why are we spending so much money on one airplane? I mean, what's this thing actually going to do? I think that is something that we should explore, and maybe we can do that here through subsequent episodes and you know initiatives. I couldn't agree more, and I feel that a lot of people think millennials and older generations are in completely different verticals, when in my perception, we're in the same vertical. We all live in the same world, and for Americans, in the same country but we are at different stages in that vertical, and I don't think we take advantage of that. I'm particularly proud to have befriended folks like yourself in recent months of my life, because I know I have a great deal to learn from my elders, and I also hope that in friendships or relationships like this, that elders consider what millennials can teach them, which I think is a hard thing to swallow for some people, because I think all people have a bias that with age comes experience and therefore with youth comes inexperience. But I know a lot of millennials who are very intelligent, very well informed, and very adaptable to different circumstances, and in many cases are more traveled than certain adults that I've known. And I'm not saying that's always the case, but as you often do so well, 
I would encourage people to start more conversations with an honest willingness to listen and learn from other people regardless of age and if both parties do that in the millennial elder scenario I do think a lot of learning and frankly a lot of change can come out of that yep I couldn't have said that any better when we started talking about just content creation we were able to bridge the age wage uh, life experience gap and really you know make our products better we had ideas that we shared we had things that we could give each other and our audiences benefited from our collaboration which led us to why we're here today so as our food shows up yes 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 um, we're going to enjoy a meal we're going to enjoy an experience that we wouldn't have had otherwise and I'm looking toward the future of what we can do and maybe if we can do something down the road to make change someone's life others will learn from it and be able to do it themselves I'd really like that Travis and if there's anyone listening right now who has military experience or perspective as a veteran or someone with far more knowledge about the military than I have, I would love it if people reached out to me and helped inform me about topics and issues that I really would like to have a deeper understanding of. And if it's alright with you, please feel free to share some of my contact information because I really would love to hear, especially from elder generations, of people listening. Absolutely, Kip. Uh, on the podcast blog site, you will have links to Kip Clark's Stride and Sonner website, his Facebook page, we can go and check out his episodes and contact him. You can also contact me, Travis at OscarMikeRadio.com, go to my website, OscarMikeRadio.com. So the food is here, and when we're in the military, we don't fool around when the food actually shows up, so I'm going to sign off. We are live at JJ's Cafe in Brockton, Massachusetts. The staff's been great. The people have been great. Uh, we're looking forward to doing this again. Maybe not here, maybe so. But uh, this is episode 440 of Oscar Mike Radio. And this is Travis Parrington with Oscar Mike Radio. My guest, Kip Clark, with the podcast, Stride Sonner. Kip, thank you once again for all your time and coming down here and checking this out. Let's see.